Thanks, guys. You can have a seat. Let's pray. Father, what, what beautiful words and what a beautiful picture and knowledge that we as sinners can come before you. That you did not leave us in our sin and in our death and our shame. You sent your son so that we might be reconciled to you. So we can come this morning and fellowship with you. And not walk in these doors, not walk into your presence with fear and trembling, but with joy and gladness. Knowing that because of your son, we have been reconciled. We are good with you. Not because we ourselves are righteous and have done enough, but because your son has. Father, I pray now as we get to look at your word, as we get to look at the story of the gospel, and get to look at redemption in action, Lord, help our hearts and minds to be set on you. In your name, amen. Well, I would encourage you to turn to the book of John. We're going to be in chapter 2. Uh, once again, thank you so much for the gift. That was quite a surprise. Thank you, Michelle, for putting that on. I'm sure you were, uh, had your hands in that. Um, this, this story that we get to look at this morning is close to my heart. It's one that I feel very deeply on. We're going to be looking at the wedding at Cana where they ran out of wine. The reason that I feel very deeply about it is uh, the, 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 the Haskins family job is catering. My father owns a catering company. I've spent many, many hours at weddings. I have had many catering events. I have been on the backside of many weddings. And let me tell you, if there's one thing that freaks out any catering person, it is to hear that you're running out of an essential item. And it's one thing that you don't want to do is disappoint the, the wedding guests and let them know, oh my goodness, we ran out of something prior to us needing to run out of that. And so this story, as, as I've been studying it this week, I've, I've just been feeling their pain, feeling Mary's pain as she has expressed it. This passage is interesting, though. Um, I'm just going to put all this on the front end prior to reading the passage. Uh, there's a lot of perspectives that surround the wedding at Cana that surround this miracle. Now, with every single miracle, every single sign that we're going to look at in the book of John, there are always those that want to try to disagree that, that it was a miracle. What they're going to say there was some trickery. So there are some folks who are more theologically liberal who reject that miracles happen, would say, you know what, this actually, Jesus didn't turn water into wine. This was a trick. This was a sleight of hand. They just said this so that people would um, believe in him. Him more, but there's also people on the opposite end, more on the theologically conservative folks, would say this, this wasn't wine actually, Jesus didn't turn this into wine, because in their tradition, good people don't drink alcohol, and so it can't be wine, because Jesus would never drink wine, he would never make wine. There's some, there's some people, who, as, they're, as they're looking at the story, make a really big deal about the imagery of three days later, because that's how it starts, that on the third day, they're pointing back to the tomb, that he always does miracles on the third day, and there are some that look at the six water jars, and they go, okay, six is one less than seven, and seven is the number of completion, and so Jesus has to come and complete. I, I I could keep going. They get more crazy the longer you go on, but I've had fun reading some commentaries and listening to some sermons and hearing some perspectives and just going like, I think you missed the point. But here's what they all agree upon. This event changed Jesus's life. It changed Jesus' ministry. It, it, it allowed Jesus to enter into a new phase of life. It allowed him to enter into a new phase in history. This was the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus knew from the, from the very beginning, he knew that he was the son of God, that the God man taking on flesh. And he knew where that was going to lead him. Now there's Philippians 2. 
He took on flesh so that he might die. He knows where his ministry is going to end, and it's going to end in a very particular place for a very particular event, for a very particular purpose. And this is where Jesus, if you will, comes on the scene in Cana. So read with me, if you will, this miracle, John 2, 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples, and the wine ran out. Again, I can feel this. This is very difficult. And the mother of Jesus said to him, we have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rite of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim and he said to them, now draw out some and take it to the head, the head of the, the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now becoming wine, he did not know where, where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And the master of the feast said to the bridegroom, and he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. It's a very simple story. In one respect, it's a very simple miracle, though no miracle is simple, but it's, you know, it's very straightforward. One substance, water, was turned into a different substance, wine. But let's kind of look at the background here, what's going on. Jesus is at a wedding. I'm sure all of you have been at a wedding, maybe your own or a friend's. It's one of those very uh, common things that happens in life. You go to a wedding. And we can see that probably the wedding was a wedding of a family member or a friend because Mary was involved in the wedding. That's why Mary went to Jesus and said, Jesus, we ran out of wine. We can read in between the, the, the lines here and realize that she is serving at this wedding. She is helping a friend out. She has something to do with it because trust me, if you go to a if you're a guest at a wedding and something happens in the back of the house and we run out of something, you're probably not going to know about it. But Mary knows about the fact that the wine is running low. And weddings are always big affairs. Always. I often say I, I find it humorous that the first thing that a new couple does is plan a big event together called a wedding because you don't really know each other. So it's always fun just to see the drama surrounding a wedding. But weddings actually were even more dramatic, larger than they are now. When we think of a wedding, we think of a day, we think of a reception, we think of a block of hours that you go there, and, and as you plan for a wedding, you plan for, let's say, four hours. This is when the reception is happening. Well, in the first century, weddings could last up to a week, and it was the responsibility of the bridegroom, not the bride, the bridegroom and his family to plan, organize, and manage all of the events that were going on that week. And the stress that was on them is far greater than anything we've ever felt. Because in first century, weddings weren't about two people being joined together. It was about two families being joined together. And from a social standing, if the wedding didn't go well, if the wedding celebration failed, if they, let's just say, ran out of wine, well, it would cause a, a family to lose honor and status in the community. 
We can even read in extra biblical um, commentaries that uh, people, brides, families would sue the groom's family if something tragic happened at a wedding. Because they would go, you put my family through shame. You dishonored my family by not having the event go well. So to say that there's emotion surrounding the fact that this, this party just ran out of wine is an understatement. So I want you to feel that. When Mary comes in and goes, we have no wine. I'm sure in her mind she has all of this weight. What's it going to do? What's this family going to happen? Maybe she's even going, it was my responsibility. So what does Mary do? Well, Mary does the thing that she has gotten used to doing. She goes to her oldest son, Jesus. Really, when she, when she comes to Jesus and, and she says, we have run out of wine, we have no wine, she is doing her natural reaction. Now, I just want to talk about Jesus' history for a moment. Joseph is no longer in Jesus' family. He's not, he's not in the picture, if you will. The last time that we read about Joseph is when Jesus was 12 and they go to the temple. It's believed that Joseph would have died by this point. So Jesus, being Mary's oldest son, the responsibility for caring for Mary would be on his shoulders. And so he was used to this responsibility. He lived his life caring for his mother as the oldest son. That's natural. There's other siblings there, so other people would be there. But Jesus, as the oldest son, is going to carry that responsibility the most. And so Mary, I'm sure, is used to the fact that Jesus is there. Jesus is going to help out. So when she comes to Jesus, really what she's saying is, can you do something? Can you fix this? Jesus I don't know what's going to happen. Can you figure this out? And really, Mary had just learned to rely upon Jesus' resourcefulness in life. I mean, think about it. Jesus was a sinless man. He's always going to do the right thing. He's going to be the most resourceful guy out there. If you're going to trust somebody, you should trust the guy who's sinless. You should trust Jesus. And so Mary's like, yeah, he's going to know what to do here. And so she walks up to him and asks him. Now, I just got to say this. I don't think Mary knew what Jesus was going to do. I don't think when Mary walks up, and, up to him and goes, we have no wine, the wine ran out, that she's thinking, can you turn some water into wine? I don't think that was at all in her picture. Because Jesus, this is his first miracle. Now, the apocryphal writings do say that Jesus, there's a story that came out about Jesus in the second century, so a hundred years after this happened, that Jesus, when he was a child, turned a clay pigeon into a dove. So some people think, well, it's because Mary knew that he had supernatural powers to do miracles like this and to change elements. But that's not a true story. That's not in our canon of scripture. So this is Jesus' first miracle. So really when she is saying here, Jesus, we ran out of wine, it really is, I don't know what to do, but can you do it? And we see here that Jesus, he does something, but he does it in a unique way. Again, before we continue in on the story, I want to talk about one other aspect of Jesus. As I said, this is his ministry starting. This is him coming on the scene. This is, he's, there's a fundamental shift now. He's, he has gone from always being the son of God, but now he's acting on that, if you will. At this moment, Jesus' relationships change. He's always been the son of God. He's always been the Messiah. He's always been sinless. He always came for a purpose. But that calling, if you will, was on hold. It wasn't his time yet. He wasn't going to act upon that. He always knew that was in his future, but he wasn't going to act upon that. 
So as a child, as he's living, he had these normal relationships with his mom, with his brothers, with his sisters, with his friend. He lived a normal life like you and I would live, yet without sin. But here, in this story, at this moment, maybe we could back it up uh, uh, a few days or weeks, when he entered into the wilderness on the 40-day and 40-night journey, that's when the, his ministry really began. But it's at this point where he goes, okay, I'm going to start something that has a very definite ending, a death. And we can see that his relationships in this change. He's no longer thinking about his mother or his brother's or his sisters. He's no longer thinking about his friends. He's thinking about the entire world. We can kind of see this put in action with his response. Jesus said to her, this is back in the text, verse 4, woman, what does this have to do with me? I assure you that if you, if, ladies, if you ask me a question and my response to you is woman, anything, it's not going to go well. And if I ever do that, you can slap me. It's okay. So it's very easy to read this and go, man, Jesus is being a little disrespectful here. He, he's being uh, a pretty prickly. But that's not what's happening. The word here that's in the Greek it is translating it woman is okay. But it's one of these words that it's hard to translate the feeling of it. Really, with this, with this description of, of a woman, uh, uh, one of the ways you could say it is dear woman. I think the NIV says that, where, where there's some emotion behind it. There's some sympathy. There's some love. There's some care. But probably the best translation would be ma'am, like a sign of respect. Jesus is talking to his mom, though. He could go, mom, what does this have to do with me? I, I, I'm, I'm your son. I'm here at the wedding. I'm, I'm a friend of the bride and groom, but what does this have to do with me? Instead, he's going, okay, woman, ma'am, child of God or creature of God. I mean, he separates this where Mary is just a creature. She goes, what does this have to do with me? Now, the way that you actually translate that phrase is what to me and to you. It's an idiom that, that, is, that is used to bring distance between the two parties. He's really going, what does that have to do with anything? Why are you coming to me? That seems like not my problem. He's probably in the corner having a conversation with his disciples. Why are you bugging me about it? Why am I the person you're, you're going to? And then he says this thing, my hour has not yet come. Jesus is beginning to speak about this path in ministry, about this intention. He's beginning to point people towards the fact that I, this isn't my time. He, what he could be saying is, I'm not, it's not time for me to be the bridegroom yet. He will be the bridegroom. He will be our bridegroom. When he sacrifices himself, when he, when he dies on the cross, that's, that's his time to be the, bri the bridegroom. He's going, but it's not my time to be the bridegroom. What does this have to do with me? It's not yet my hour. I shouldn't do anything. I don't think Mary actually understood this phrase. I don't. Probably his disciples didn't understand this phrase. And the reason I don't think they understood this phrase is because he's going to start speaking in this language of my hour has not yet come throughout this gospel. 
And I don't think it's until he dies on the cross, he, he's buried, he's resurrected, he ascends into heaven, and the disciples are, are sitting back and considering all that has gone along, and they have the missing puzzle piece of the cross and of death and of burial and of, and of resurrection, and they start thinking back through these stories, and they go, oh, that's what he means. So consider John, the gospel writer, one of these disciples at this wedding. He saw this. And as he's sitting down to write this gospel, so that as a thesis statement says, you and I might believe, he starts to go, oh, from the very beginning. He said, my time has not yet come. I have a path towards the cross. But Mary, not understanding it, but trusting, says, do whatever he tells you. There's quite a few sermons that spend almost the majority of the time in this text focusing in on that phrase. Do whatever he tells you. And I don't want to take it out of context and turn it into one of those phrases that we put on mugs and we just plaster all around and we totally miss the context. She literally just means do whatever he tells you. But an interesting side note about Mary. She's quoted very little in the Gospels. But every time she speaks and everything that she says is just pure gold. It's wisdom beyond wisdom. It is wisdom beyond measure. It, it is just so simple and something that we can latch onto. And I think now on the other side of the cross, we can hear this phrase, do whatever he tells you. And we can take that to the bank. Because what she has seen already in Jesus's life is that she might not know what Jesus is going to do or what he's going to say, but she has confidence and she trusts that whatever he does is right and is best at that moment. I, I, again, not to take it out of context and make a mountain out of a molehill here, but I think we can apply that truth to life. So often when we come to those struggles, what, what are we going to do? We have the metaphorical, our life ran out of wine and we need more wine. I'm, it's about, I'm about ready to ruin myself. What should I do? We don't just go to Jesus and say, I'm going to do whatever you tell me to do. Because I trust that what you tell me to do is going to be best. I'm not going to trust on my own wisdom. I'm going to trust in your wisdom. I'm not going to try to direct my own life. I'm going to let you direct my life. We sit and we rest and go, you're God and I'm not and I'm going to trust that. So Mary here in this first sign does that. Do whatever he tells you. I don't know what he's going to be, but whatever it is, it's going to be best. So now for the miracle. What does Jesus do? There were six stone water jars there for the, Jew for the Jewish rite of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And I can see Jesus after Mary comes up to him and he goes, okay, I'll do it. He goes, servants, can you please fill these jars with water? Now, where did these jars come from? Why are they there? Now, it says they're for the Jewish rite of purification. And, and purification was a big deal if you were a Jew. 
The Torah talks much about cleansing, making sure that we are clean when we interact with people, when we come before the Lord. So cleansing is a common part of their Jewish life. And so what would happen is at a wedding, you would have these vessels of purification. Now, the reason they were stone and not clay is because if they were clay, they would have to be cleansed and they would have to be put in a kiln, but those are too large. But because it's stone, it's naturally pure, something that the Torah talks about. So they have these naturally pure um, jars, vessels there, and Jesus says, okay, fill them up. Now, why are they empty? Well, they're empty because they've been used. They're empty because at the beginning of the party, of the wedding, when people sat down, the servants knew to take pictures and to walk around and to pour it over the hands of the wedding guests to purify them. They're empty because the purification has already happened. So from a catering standpoint, that vessel can be shoved to the side. We don't need that any longer because they're used. Well, Jesus says, okay, bring that back out because those are perfect vessels for this and fill it up. And what does it say? It says, fill the jars with water and they filled it to the brim. Why did they fill it to the brim? Well, I love that John says this because one of the accusations, one of the thoughts that um, those individuals who reject the idea that this is a miracle say, well, Jesus just slipped in some concentrated wine into these jars so that it, it, it was a magic trick in that way. But when it says he filled it to the brim, what he's saying is there's no, there, he can't add anything to it. It's completely full. Then I love the fact that he filled it to the brim and then he said, okay, now take it out. Like imagine the servant that was tasked with this job to fill these up to the brim, which I'm going to talk about the amount of liquid here in a minute. It's a lot of liquid. And so he goes, as he's sweating, he's like, but I just got done with this. You want me to empty it? And yeah. And he takes the pitcher, maybe the same pitcher that was used for purification at the beginning and dips it in and it turns in to wine. Now, I, I, I would love to be at that scene. I'd love to be behind the uh, backstage at that point. And the guy's like, I, I, what had the, I know where the water came from. I filled it up myself. I know there's water in there. Why, how, how can this be wine? And he took it to the headmaster. The, the, he took it to the master of the feast. And they started to serve it. And we can see here that the bridegroom, as he is tasting this, and he's looking at his master of the feast, and he goes, uh, why, why are we just now serving this stuff? This is amazing. Why is it now that this stuff is being produced and given to us? This should have been the first offering. This is the best one I've ever had. Now, I just want to stop for a moment and talk about the wine. First, I want to talk about the quantity. It tells us that there's six stone jars holding between 20 and 30 gallons. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't normally buy wine by the gallon. I've never done that before. I don't even know if you can do that. So let's, let's talk about what we're, what we're dealing with here. If there's six jars between 20 or 30 gallons, that means that in total, we're dealing with between 120 gallons and 180 gallons of wine. Now, again, we don't buy wine by the gallon. Maybe you can. We normally buy it by the bottle. So let's break that down. In our conversion, there's five normal bottles of wine to every one gallon. 
So now we're talking about that Jesus just made between 600 bottles of wine and 900 bottles of wine. Now, allow me for a moment to go back to my catering side. When you're planning a party, one of the things you consider is how much to bring, how much wine and alcohol to bring to these parties. And so there's a conversion. The conversion is one drink an hour per person. So let's assume there's 100 people at this wedding. Doesn't say the size. It's not in a large town. Cana is a pretty small town in Galilee. So it's not like there's going to be hundreds and hundreds of people there. This is a small wedding that's going on. So let's say there's 100 people. Now for us, we do parties by the hours. So let's assume we have 100 guests. We have four hours. That means we're going to have 400 drinks because there's an hour per, there's a drink per hour. There's 400 drinks. That means we need 80 bottles of wine for a party of 100 people. Let's put that back to gallons. That means we need 16 gallons of wine. Why do I make all of these conversions? Jesus just made wine enough to satisfy thousands of people for hundreds of hours. This miracle was not just enough. This was not, I'm going to get you to the end of the party. This was, I could satisfy this party, your next party, and the rest of your parties for your entire life amount of wine. And it's not, again, this, you know, poor wine or this concentrated wine. It was the best wine possible. Why was it the best wine possible? Well, because Jesus is the master winemaker, because he's the master maker, because he makes everything. And in an instant, what is packed into this, fill the jars up and empty the jars, is an amazing miracle because it takes time and energy and resources to make wine. I mean, for us to make wine, the best wine, the soil has to have the right conditions, the grapes has to have the right, the right conditions, there's weather, there's water, there's the harvesting time, there's the pressing it out, there's using the right barrels, there's the time itself, and I don't make wine, so I'm sure there's a whole lot more nuances in there. And Jesus makes wine for this party. And again, he doesn't make just adequate wine. He makes the best wine. Why in the world, as the bride, as the master of peace goes, why did you wait to serve this after we had consumed all of our products that were second rate at best? And what I love is the bridegroom doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm sure he's like, yeah, sorry, we, we mixed up the bottles because the bridegroom doesn't want to get in trouble. Again, he's trying to keep up his appearance here. But who does know? Jesus and his disciples and the servants. I love that the, this first miracle is not done to the high class, the people that are out in front. It's not done to the elites. It's done to the servants. The people who there who are exhausted. Can you imagine coming home that night if you were serving at this wedding and telling them that story? You're not going to believe what happened. We ran out of wine and I thought it was going to be my fault. And all of a sudden, this guy that I've never heard of before, or the other way goes, hey, so you've met Mary's son, right? Yeah, he can do things that I've never seen before. Like he can turn water into wine. No, I'm serious. Like the best wine. Like I tried some of it. It's amazing. And they're the ones who believed first. So what does all this show us? Every passage in the Bible 
I believe, especially in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, every passage should build our hope and faith in the person of Jesus. Every passage in John, most definitely, because that's the thesis statement. That's why John wrote this book. I have written these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that you may believe in it, it, that you might believe and have life in his name. That's why John wrote all of these down. So for us, we can step back and go, how does this miracle in a small town in Galilee of changing water into wine, how does it build our hope and faith in Jesus? I've written a couple things down. First, the savior that we worship and that we trust in has the power over the very elements and atoms of our world. He's the creator and the sustainer, and he can do whatever he wants. He can turn water into wine. Second thing that stands out is that he cares about the simple things. We would never have heard about this wedding going awry if Jesus was not there. If this wedding would have run out of wine, it wouldn't have mattered a week later. I mean, yeah, there's the social aspects there, but you can get over that. And if you can't get over that, you should get over that. This is a very simple thing. But why is Jesus loving this group enough to do his first miracle at a wedding? And I think that's because in the grand scheme of things, Jesus cares about the simple things. He wants to serve us. He wants to help us. He wants to love us. And he's going to demonstrate that by turning water into wine. This third thing. Jesus acts so that we might believe. I want to stop and talk about this one for a moment. More often than not, the way that our Christian life is described to us and God's power is described to us. It's this way. If I have enough faith, God will act. If I believe hard enough, God will do the thing. If I pray enough, God will come through. Where's the onus lie in that? On us, on me. And then we sit there and go, I guess I didn't have enough faith, so God didn't act. That's not how Jesus and God operates. Jesus turns water into wine so that we might believe in him. He acts in our life so that we can look back and go, he is faithful. He does not do those things in your life because you prayed enough, you pleaded enough, you asked enough. He does those things in your life so that you can look back on them and go, God's gracious and faithful. And he acted once, he's going to act again. For this particular passage, we can see my Savior can turn water into wine and do something that no one else can do. I don't care who says they can do that. They cannot do that because changing the elements is outside of our power and our control. But here, our faith can be strengthened that our Savior, our God, can turn water into wine. And then the fourth one. Our time for purification is over. Go back to the jars again. They were empty because they had been used. 
And what did Jesus use them for the next time they were filled up? Not for more purification, but for celebration. He takes these vessels that at one time administered our cleansing, pointed to us to go, we need to be cleansed. And now he turned those same vessels and instead of using them for cleansing, he used them for celebration where we can sit and we can enjoy his presence and say, those are done. Now we can celebrate with him. Here's what I love about this. Our time for purification, if we are in Christ, is over. Because at the time of this miracle, his hour had not yet come. But give it three years and it would. And now, he's no longer Jesus, Mary's son. He's Jesus, the Messiah, our bridegroom. And we can see elsewhere in scripture where he is now commanding us as his bride, as his child of God, when we come to him, we don't come to him to be purified as we're interacting with him. We come to him to celebrate. When he's going to come again, we are going to be his bride going to our bridegroom and what are we going to do? Celebrate. As we direct our attention towards communion, I mean, we can't miss the wine in, in scriptures. We can't miss the wine in this, in this time though because we don't take of the elements to purify ourselves. We take of the elements to celebrate the purification that we have in Christ. We sit here and we take it each week being reminded that we no longer have to cleanse ourselves. We don't have to worry about, am I good to come before the Lord? Am I good to be at the bridegroom's table? Rather, we come before the Lord and we can say, it was finished in Christ. And I get to celebrate that with him. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your savior, First, we're so glad that you're here. But we would ask for this particular element that we would, you would just allow it to pass you by and don't partake of it. Because we don't want these elements to confuse you. Because we don't take these elements to fill up anything that's lacking. We don't take these elements to earn our way to heaven. We take these elements to celebrate that our purification has been complete in Christ. Let's pray and we can take this together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for these miracles that while we weren't there, we didn't see it with our own two eyes. We can trust that our Savior has the power to change the very elements of this earth. That our Savior cares about the lowly and insignificant things and is willing to do miracles there. That our Savior acts so that we can, so our faith can be strengthened in him. Father, help us to rest in the truth that Christ is the perfect savior and he has given us everything that we need. In your name, amen.